Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly, remembering the Buffalo Massacre. I shot and killed people because they were black. One year after a racist gunman murdered 10 black people, how is the community healing? And who some now say is responsible for radicalizing the killer? Then, black sperm donors. Why getting pregnant comes with a surprising challenge for some black women, including rap artist Debrat. There's definitely not a lot of uh, African-American options. RBN investigates the shortage of black sperm donors and why some women are now shopping for sperm online. And the use of psychedelic drugs is now on the rise among black Americans. It really just kind of turned the light on on life for me. Could they be the key to treating our mental health crisis? Plus, from going rogue to going woke. If you do anything wrong in your life, I'm gonna try to take everything away from you. Could the modern era of canceling kill comedy? What's still fair game? What's completely off limits? And who gets a pass? The legends and the newbies weigh in on the new rules of being funny. That's all tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. everyone and welcome to the show. It's been one year since a white supremacist opened fire at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, murdering 10 innocent people in one of the worst racist shootings in recent history. While the city continues to mourn and heal, families of the victims have lawyered up for a new fight, asking the question, who is ultimately responsible? Revolt Black News investigates one year since the Buffalo massacre. I mean, we've known the problem in this country now since over the past 100 plus years. The problem is uh, racism and white supremacy. Mark Talley's mother, Geraldine Talley, was one of the 10 victims who were shot and killed last year at Top Supermarket in Buffalo, New York. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron drove three and a half hours from his home in Conklin, New York, 200 miles to Buffalo with the intention to kill black people. I shot and killed people because they were black. Looking back now, I can't believe I actually did it. I believed what I read online and acted out of hate. Gendron reportedly wrote a 180-page manifesto that he released prior to the shooting. There, he described himself as a supporter of white supremacy, motivated to commit acts of political violence. He voiced support for the far-right Great Replacement conspiracy theory in the context of a white genocide, speaking frequently on the topic of mass immigration. And he claims he adopted these ideological stances after visiting the discussion board Paul on 4chan, as well as the website The Daily Stormer around the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. On his rifle, he wrote the N-word and names of other white supremacist mass murderers like Dylan Roof, who killed nine black people during Bible study at a Charleston church in 2015. But the fact that he was able to drive 200 miles with a semi-automatic weapon and illegally modified one at that in tactical care, 
and walk into a store from the parking lot and you don't hear nobody screaming. You know, that kind of says something about our mental state that we don't associate danger, you know, with a white person holding a gun. I'm about 6'6", 290 with long hair. So if I was to hop out, not even a semi-automatic rifle, you know, just a fake BB gun, I'm pretty sure you'll see people start screaming. And unfortunately, we've been conditioned to believe that the most dangerous man in society is a black man. To fully understand what happened in Buffalo, it's important to understand the city itself. It's a city divided. The east side of Buffalo, the location of the Topps grocery store where 10 black lives were lost, is located in a majority black neighborhood with a median income of just over $32,000 a year. The socioeconomic inequality still remains, you know, on the east side of Buffalo. You know, the problems we had, you know, before 514 are still the problems we have after 514. Last year, the University of Buffalo Center for Urban Studies released a report comparing Buffalo in 1990 to Buffalo today. In 1990, 38% of the black population lived in poverty. In 2021, little changed with a 35% poverty rate and only 32% of those black families owning their homes. That's compared to only 26% of white Buffalo families who live in poverty and a significant 74.5% home ownership rate. In 2014, a Buffalo bank was sued by the state attorney general for engaging in modern day redlining. In 2022, a complaint was filed against a Buffalo police captain. In that lawsuit, three black employees accused her of going on a 20-minute racist rant, saying things like, quote, white police officers suffered post-traumatic stress disorder from working in black neighborhoods, but black officers did not because they were more accustomed to violent crime. Before the Topps mass shooting in East Buffalo, the city's black community was terrorized by a man known as the 22 caliber killer. His name was Joseph Christopher, and he's believed to have killed at least 12 black boys and men. There's already so much this community has historically endured. Gendron's attack felt like a breaking point. Oh my God, he shot so many people in there. I was scared for my mom. I didn't know where she was. I thought she was gone. In October, New York State Attorney General Letitia James released a report blaming dark web platforms for influencing Gendron. These are acts of hate and they must be prosecuted as such. The report found Gendron used several social media sites, including the platform Twitch, where he live streamed his every move during his planned attack. It's then, right here. Families of the victims have decided it's time to fight back in a different way. They've filed a lawsuit against multiple social media platforms or their parent company, who they say are responsible for the radicalization of Gendron. You gotta hit them in their pocket, because that's all they care about. Joining me now is attorney John Elmore. He represents three of the families who are suing social media giants, and that includes companies like Meta, Google, and Amazon. John, I really appreciate you being here, and I want to get right into this. So your lawsuit is not focusing on content, which is protected. You're focusing on the algorithm. Why? 
That's correct. The way social media is is designed, it is to maximize user engagement. The more time that the user is engaged, then the more money the social media providers will make. So they have a design where they'll send algorithms. In this particular case, with the killer Peyton Gendron uh, was radicalized on social media. Uh, we believe that he was increasingly fed more extreme content and initially fed uh, content, um, not necessarily based upon his searching for things, but but it's designed again to, to engage. And so he was educated about the fight replacement theory, about the acceleration theory. He saw live streams of other mass shootings. And even at his plea of guilty and in his diary when he was planning this mass shooting, uh, he attributed uh, his indoctrination into the white supremacy theory and encouragement uh, from the social media platforms that he was engaged with. Now, you've cited a study that gives a little bit more detail into what happens when you search for something like white supremacy. So what happens when you're a user, you're on Facebook, say, and you search for white supremacy? What kinds of information was he receiving and then getting more of because the algorithm saw how engaged he was? This study found that, that when there were Facebook searches for some groups with Ku Klux Klan in their name, it generated ads for black churches highlighting those minority institutions uh, that they were that were searching for white supremacist groups. And so that sh would shock the user, right? The, the user doesn't like black folks. And now all of a sudden he sees something that he hates and that would keep him on there longer and then they would profit from them. How would you like to see the way that social media companies are run and operate change if you're victorious in this lawsuit? We want the social media's uh, platforms to be more responsible. We want them to have warnings so that they uh, uh, can warn children's uh, uh, parents and, and other families about the danger of extremism and being indoctrinated. We want them to modify uh, the algorithm so that they're not directing this extreming material to people that are young in their formative years. When you think about it, uh, a 17 or 18 year old, their brains are still developing. Their judgment is at, at centers aren't completely formed. Their ability to, to be self-controlled, there can be very influenced. And Peyton Gendron began this influence and this indoctrination when he was a teenager, when he was very, very susceptible to being influenced in the wrong way. And if it wasn't for the social media platforms and their irresponsible behavior, these families that suffered the worst tragic loss that is imaginable um, wouldn't be suffering today. Those people would be alive. Now, John, there are going to be some people who say the only person responsible for what happened was the shooter. And for all we know, he could have been a racist long before he started searching these things on social media. How would you respond to that? It's very easy because all you have to do is 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 read his diary, his manifesto. There's only over 600 pages of his diary about what was happening and describing his thinking. He attributes his indoctrination the social media platforms and they use the social media to figure out what type of gun to use, where to get the body armor and how to make a gun uh, that would have room for nine 
uh, pieces of ammunition to one that had 30. Now, you represent uh, several family members of victims. What have you heard from them? What would they like to see happen as a result of this lawsuit? The families want nothing more than to make America safe, to make this community safe, and to stop the bloodshed and to stop the spread of white supremacy and the doctrination of other mass shooters. John, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and also, so sorry for what your community has gone through this last year. I know that this is, you live there. This is part of your community. This is more than just a case for you. It, it hurts me. I've, I've been feeling their pain ever since the day of that mass shooting. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to share this with your viewers. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. A different kind of conversation about black families. A growing number of black women are looking to expand their families with sperm donors. But why are so many, including DeBrat, choosing men who are not black? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. Thanks to advances in science like IVF, surrogacy, and sperm donation, the dream of parenthood is possible for more people than ever before. But for far too many black women seeking sperm donors, the journey to motherhood can also come with a lot of disappointment as less than 4% of donors are black. It's impacting black families all across the country. Let's be very, very candid. The only reason why you ended up light-skinned is because of the, the, the selection or the, the, the the, the donors that were available. There were no African-American donors for me to choose from. That's crazy. In 1989, Mrs. Renee, Black Girl Stuff co-host Brie Renee's mother, was desperate to become a first-time mom, and a sperm bank was her answer. I feel like a lot of people assume that as well because I'm like, like oh, her mother must have hated herself, so she went in and I love chose myself. a sperm donor that was not Black. But I, it's like, fact of the matter is how many black people, men, you know, going to donate sperm? There were, there were none. The lack of suitable black male donors forced Bree's mom to choose a Middle Eastern candidate. He had to have some qualifications, right. you know, and they're going to bash me about this. I didn't want a dummy. They're not going to bash that you. Ain't, that you know, ain't I, I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't want a dummy. I didn't want anybody who was three feet tall. Yeah. You know, I, I was you hoping. You qualities for your child's life. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was, there, I had my set of criteria. Um, what was high on your list of criteria? Believe, believe, it, believe it or not, I was looking for height. And nine months later, her beautiful baby girl arrived. Did she also tell you she was supposed to be a boy? She was? And I was supposed to be a boy, child. Oh, that's <laughs> why you be... Gotcha! <laughs> but Mrs. Renee's donor dilemma, sadly, is not unique. Recent studies show that at four of the country's largest sperm banks, African-American donors represent less than 4% of the overall collection. We were sent, I think, three or four, um, I think they call cryobanks. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a lot of... Uh... African-American options. Rapper DeBrat and wife Judy are among the many disappointed African-American families on the hunt for black sperm. We knew for sure we wanted a black donor. We wanted our, um, son, our child to, you know, like be similar to us. 
there was a site that had over 700 donors and it was probably 25 African-American donors. California's Cryobank reports the wait for a suitable white donor is usually three months. But get this, a client with dreams of a black donor at the same facility could wait as long as 18 months, a year and a half. It almost felt like I was having a bit of my decision taken away from me. Angela Stepansik and her wife welcomed their multiracial daughter last year. We um, began looking at different donors um, from the large sperm banks across America, Fairfax, Atlanta, California. And while looking, we realized that we really didn't have any choices. There were one bank may have about a hundred, over a hundred different donors. And then when we would click black or brown, it would really knock down to like four to six donors so quickly. And so that's when I really thought like, wait, why, why aren't there more options? Here's what's going on. The black male sperm shortage is blamed on several factors and overall failed recruitment of black donors. Donors can't have felony convictions. And this is a big one. The selection process often demands a donor to have three generations worth of medical history, something many black men just don't have. I mean, three generations is even difficult for a non-black person to really think back and not just think about. But when you add that extra intersection of being black and the different um, social and um, social justice related issues that impact the black community that may be preventative and prohibitive from having generations and generations of healthcare. Like that's, it's, it's restrictive. I'm a healthy guy and I wanted to donate sperm to help people uh, have children. In 2019, Trevon Roach Carter had two degrees and was in perfect health when he began his donor journey in San Francisco. The hopeful candidate made it almost to the very end of the process before he was abruptly denied. The problem? He's gay. My first reaction to that was I was confused. I was really shocked to see that this was still going on. Government policy restricts donations for men who have had intercourse with other men within the previous five years, listing HIV concerns. Sperm and blood are tested when they're donated anyways. The fact that they're still rejecting uh, donations from queer people is backwards. Gay men can serve in the army now, but they can't give their blood to a fellow countryman. It's it's horrible. Angela was so frustrated by the process, she took action. In the fall, Angela is opening up the Reproductive Village in Washington, D.C., the first Black-owned cryobank in the U.S. Angela hopes to open up sperm donation to perfectly suitable candidates previously turned away. We'll be at Howard. We're going to engage with fraternities, sororities. We're going to go to different conferences and festivals that really target and celebrate Black and brown people. But Angela acknowledges the increasingly short supply has turned many women away from cryobanks and onto social media. Many people are now buying black donor sperm through apps or online and private groups with inconsistent regulation. They're even finding donors on Facebook. A lot of private donations really concern me. Um, within cryobanks, once a donor creates a certain amount of children, that donor is removed from the market because we don't really want any crossover, right? Is it really safe to get sperm in the mail from a stranger? Is that really his sperm? You're not sure. Will he ever come and seek parental rights? I try not to go over three donations a week. Zachary Brabham has donated his sperm at least 10 times and claims he's fathered four healthy black babies. 
He's heard the concerns, but the red tape at sperm banks led him to go the private route with no regrets. I got into this from my wife. She does surrogacy and we really just wanted a way to help people. And I'm helping by giving donations to people who can't receive them otherwise. So how do people know that they're getting my sperm and not my neighbor's sperm? Uh, really, it, it is about the relationship that we build. I charge $100 for my service. I'm 6'9", and personally, I've had a lot of recipients reach out to me specifically because I'm 6'9". It's really hard to tell someone that the way they've chosen to have a baby isn't the right way to do it. And so I would hope that they're protecting themselves as best as possible because it's dangerous. So just protect yourself. Coming up after the break, it's a mushroom boom. Why a lot of black people are turning to psychedelics for mental health treatment, saying drugs like ecstasy, LSD, and Special K are changing their lives. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. It's a new trip that a lot of people these days are taking. We're talking about psychedelics. Use of drugs like acid, mushrooms, and ketamine is booming, including with many black celebrities. They're turning to these drugs for mental health treatment, seeking an alternative to traditional therapy and pharmaceutical drugs. And proponents say the results are dramatic, helping people overcome things like crippling depression and long-held trauma. Molly, it's a psychedelic drug you've probably heard name-checked in a song. Well, these days, drugs like this are moving from the club to the couch for a completely different kind of party. I am going to connect the syringe to the pump to start the infusion. At Complete Ketamine Solutions, the first ketamine clinic in the country founded by a black woman, owner and clinical director Tanya Miller administers ketamine as a mental health treatment. So I'm gonna get a mask for Antonio. Patient Antonio Brownlee suffers from depression, anxiety, and PTSD. As the drug, which has been used in anesthesia since the 1950s, works its way into Antonio's system, he will drift into a temporary state of semi-consciousness and disassociation, feeling like he's outside of his body. And he is now going to go to a new land. Just a few years ago, this would have been considered unthinkable. But these days, treatments like this are happening every day. I think that it's very important for the black community to seek treatment because we have been disenfranchised for so many years. And when we suffer from mental illness, I think we're stigmatized and we are stagnant and unable to grow to our full potential. Tanya's clinic is part of an explosion in therapeutic use of psychedelics to treat everything from depression to anxiety and heal long-held trauma. The most commonly used are LSD or acid, MDMA, known on the streets as ecstasy or molly, mushrooms, and ketamine, often called Special K. 
The most potent psychedelics include iboga, a root from Africa, said to be the purple herb in Black Panther, and ayahuasca, a tea brewed from two plants found in the South American rainforest. Both have been used for thousands of years by indigenous tribes. How have we seen indigenous cultures use psychedelics? Sacred plants have been with us since the beginning of time. Um, and we just forgot about them or, or you know, they're pushed away, but it's coming back. And it's just being a re resurgence of people understanding uh, what's going on. The mushrooms are now speaking out. They're speaking out to, for people to be reawakened to themselves. Nothing was more important than treating my depression. And with once daily Wellbutrin XL, I feel like me again. Mental health treatments haven't developed much since medicines like Wellbutrin, Prozac, and Zoloft were introduced in the 80s and 90s. These antidepressants are known to have certain limitations. From large studies like the STARDI trial, we know that the medications work. Do they cure depression? No. Are some people non-responders? Yes. But our mental health has been spiraling. Suicide rates increasing 30% between 1999 and 2016. So we've been seeing a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, poor sleep, irritability, and a rise in people self-medicating. And this is really to ease that angst and that uncertainty and that stress related to the pandemic. Enter psychedelics. Voters in Oregon and Colorado passed ballot measures decriminalizing psilocybin, while Texas and Connecticut have approved measures allowing for the study of psychedelics for mental health treatment. MDMA could be important for the future of psychiatry as the discovery of antibiotics was for general medicine 100 years ago. What kind of transformations and healing have you seen um, with people who have been using psychedelics and plant medicine for mental health and spiritual treatment? What it does, it gives you a mirror of yourself. And I've taken over, uh, as a shaman, over 100 people through this process individually and collectively. The number one thing they say is, wow, I now see myself. The number two thing they say is, thank you. An estimated 1.4 million Americans tried hallucinogens for the first time in 2020, while venture capitalists are pumping hundreds of millions into startups like Mind State Design Labs. Black celebs like Will Smith and Howard Stern's sidekick Robin Quivers even speaking openly about their own use. Am I talking to a new Robin? <laughs> I am I am very, very pleasantly surprised that I came home feeling great. Fans of psychedelics say they're becoming more popular because they work. One study finding that 88% of participants with PTSD experienced a significant reduction of symptoms two months after their third session of MDMA-assisted therapy. It really just kind of turned the light on, on life for me. It literally, everything was brighter, everything was more detailed. It was just quite the awakening. We're gonna start with the breaking news. Emmy award-winning journalist Candace Gibson turned to psychedelics after traditional methods, therapy and prescription drugs, provided little relief for his lifelong depression. We have a busy, busy day. And it came to the point where I was at ABC, anchoring the overnight news for several years, not dealing with sleep very, very well, and became suicidal. And it was at that point that I realized that I needed to get some help. Kendis grew up 
four in Belize and moved to the U.S. at 11. What were the messages that you got from your family growing up about mental health? The messages that I got from my family, if you were depressed, you were crazy. You don't want crazy men, they will say. And that's why I feel it's so important to speak out about it because so many of us, especially from Caribbean roots, but also largely from the black community, um, don't talk about it. And we just suffer in silence. Candace's suffering slowly started to ease when he began experimenting with MDMA and mushrooms with friends, eventually taking a trip deep into the jungles of Peru for an ayahuasca ritual. And then when did you start using psychedelics in a more targeted way as a treatment for depression? I went back to New York. I was working at MSNBC at the time, and it was during pandemic. People were dying all around us, but I was insanely happy and I had to do a come to Jesus to figure out, wait, what has changed in my life? And then I started doing research into mushrooms and realized that might have been it. I feel as if I am, I have rewired my brain. The mushrooms have completely rewired my thinking. Ketamine, which is FDA approved to treat depression, helped Tanya's son when she sought help beyond traditional therapies. When I saw it with my son, I was like, this is amazing. But I never, ever imagined that I would be sitting here today on in my own clinics. How can that be effective? Yeah, so if we think about uh, what these drugs do, a drug like ketamine, for example, uh, it can do something like resetting uh, the way a person is experiencing or seeing a certain event. And so if you have this sort of resetting uh, in combination uh, with a skilled therapist, that could ultimately help people to uh, change their behavior in the future uh, and help them to change their outlook. But there are downsides. For one thing, it can be expensive. Ketamine treatments costing as much as $4,000 for the recommended six sessions. And while most psychedelics have an extremely low chance of lethal overdose and likelihood of addiction, they are not without risk. They can be abused in social settings, while those with a family history of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder may be vulnerable to psychotic or manic episodes and are therefore excluded from clinical trials. We don't want people going out and you know, self-medicate themselves in uncontrolled settings because then you get these scary anecdotal cases where bad things happen and it ruins it for the rest of the people who could potentially have access. So. I think that as populations of color, we need to read for ourselves, we need to educate ourselves so that we can take it to our providers because a lot of our providers don't look like us. Experts say the safest setting is clinical, like Complete Ketamine Solutions, where Antonio has just come back down to earth. After each treatment, I've gotten better. Just helped me focus, uh, just helped me be at ease with a lot of things and just lets me know everything gonna be okay. Coming up on Revolt Black News, are we becoming so sensitive that we've lost our sense of humor? And is wokeness ruining the business of being funny? Kennedy Rue has a cross-generational take on that. That's coming up next. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. 
Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. amazing surprise to close out Coachella. Zendaya taking the stage and performing with the band Labyrinth. That's the group behind the title song to her Emmy-winning HBO hit Euphoria, which by the way returns for season three in 2024. Welcome back. It's time to get all caught up now with what's jumping off on the pop culture and entertainment front. And Kennedy is here with that. Hey, Kennedy. Thanks, Mara. And by the way, Coachella was lit. I mean, I was on the ground to support my folks like Willow Smith and others, but we'll get to that. But we'll start things off as we put some shine on the wave of excellent and young powerhouses securing their place in the history books as Hollywood's black girl renaissance continues to set the industry on fire. I feel like we're in a black female renaissance mm. when it comes to performing, when it comes to artistry. Um, talk to me about where you feel like we are in the space of black actresses, black artists, black musicians, black female um, creatives kind of stepping into their power in this specific moment. It is just that. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're in a, we're highlighting some areas that we don't normally see, um, specifically in the space of comedy. Okay, Tassels. Oh, Shay. Oh, damn, I'm ashy? No, I was saying. Ooh, good looking. Out, Nadia. Got my girl Robin Thede, yes. who has the Black Lady Sketch Show, which has mm -hmm. opened a space in a very niche area of comedy mm -hmm. that has been very much so male dom male dominated, white sure. male specifically. But I want to know, was it important for you to create a show that's unapologetically black? One of my biggest pet peeves in the industry is that oftentimes when we see people of color on television, mm -hmm. the people of, uh, who are writing for them do not look like that person. Um, you know, when you think of like an A Living Color or you think of a Mad TV or even an SNL, there's, you can literally probably hold in one hand a couple of names of the black women that were representing that. Mm -hmm. So what I love now is there's a space and there's a world where I am so excited for the next generation, this next future, yeah. that a show like our Black Lady Sketch Show, it is mm -hmm. inspiring a whole nother generator of writers, directors, creatives, you know, mm -hmm. um, comedians, like all of that. Yeah. And I think that's gonna be very special to see what grows out of that space. Black Lady Sketch Show co-star Gabrielle Dennis breaking it down. She stopped by Revolt Studios to not only talk about the black woman renaissance, but also about her latest gig co-starring in the Apple TV series, The Big Door Prize, in which she is broadening the conversation about race and casting. When you got the script, for Big Door Prize, did it specify that your character was a black female or was that something that you just did. taking the role embodied? Honestly, I don't think it did. A lot of times they call you in because they don't mm -hmm. know exactly what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the script started one way and then maybe it changed this way. And right. like you, you don't know what draft of the script that you get. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times they're just open to see what you bring to the table and like mm -hmm. what humanity do you bring? So I think that you, you just kind of go and you do your job and you hope for the best. 
That's what Yara Shahidi did taking on the role as Tinkerbell. She became the first black actress to play the fairy in the upcoming Disney film, Peter Pan and Wendy. You're playing such an iconic character that's historically been portrayed by a white actress. Is there pressure yeah. that comes along with tackling that and being different from the image that people have always had in their mind? I mean, I think what released some of the pressure for me was that some of the first conversations I had about this film were with the producers and with the director about what this newer, more inclusive version of Peter Pan and Wendy meant to them. How surprised were you that people were initially so attached to the identity of this fictional character? I mean, like you said, mm -hmm. this is a fairy tale. It's an imaginary world. And we often don't get to see people that look like us in these fantastical series. Yeah, I mean, Quite honestly, I think what's interesting is coming from a perspective of somebody that's black and Iranian, I think, mm -hmm. and experienced so many black and brown folks of any really particular ethnic or minority background are familiar with, is having to empathize with characters that don't look like us. And so right. it's interesting when that skill set that we've had to define for our entire lives isn't extended to us. And Yara joins the likes of Halle Bailey, whose black woman renaissance is shaking things up as the first black Little Mermaid, which was met with some pushback. There were a lot of people who were concerned that a fictional mermaid could not be played by a black person because historically, this character has been portrayed as white. Daily Variety senior entertainment writer Angelique Jackson says the time is right for black women to stand tall and further shine in Hollywood. The black woman renaissance has been brewing since Bridgerton and Grey's Anatomy creator Shonda Rhimes changed the game in front of and behind the scenes. What's so interesting about Shonda Rhimes is that, no, she's not, you know, the first black woman to ever run a show. You have people like Debbie Allen or Mara Brockakeel or Yvette Lee Bowser, but she absolutely changed the game. Young people need to see people who look like them working in front of and behind the screen. With her TGIT lineup, that thank God it's Thursday with Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder really changed the game. I feel very proud. I feel very lucky. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, any moment you step back and look, you think, my God, I'm really grateful. Her take charge approach helped kick the door down and carve out space for ladies like Ava DuVernay and eight-time Emmy nominee Issa Rae, who's behind HBO's hits Insecure and Rap Shit. Issa, so talk to me about being here at ABFF 2022, getting one of your initial starts here, and then bringing rap shit here this year. I mean, it's kind of a full circle moment. It's absolutely a full circle moment, and to have a show that is set in Miami, uh, kind of loosely based on my experiences at ABFF yeah. is also like super, super full circle, and I just feel proud. And now other creatives are getting the chance to shine. You don't love me! Authenticity is what landed Zendaya her two Emmy wins for Euphoria, in which she not only stars, but is also an executive producer on the gritty HBO series. I'm always in the pursuit of like learning and growing, and what's so special I think about Euphoria is the people that I get to work with and learn from every day, you know? Um, and I feel like I'm in the, in, the, in the best place. I mean, one day I hope I can learn to direct, and that, that's a dream of mine. And Zendaya took Euphoria on the road to the desert for Coachella. She shocked the crowds by crashing Labyrinth set to perform the Euphoria tracks, I'm Tired and All For Us. 
It was a jam-packed weekend of celebrating music, but I was there to support my bestie Willow Smith as she gave her black woman renaissance best, performing both weekends. Even her dad Will was in the crowd, clearly very proud of his daughter as he posted video of her performance, calling her set Willowcella. And as Coachella wraps, another festival is just getting started. This weekend together, we're headed to Virginia Beach with our friends at Walmart to check out the Something in the Water Festival, celebrating black entrepreneurs, creatives, and culture makers of all kinds. We'll have a complete wrap up of the Something in the Water Festival on our next show. Stay with us, there's more Revolt Black News after the break. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back. This week marks three years since George Floyd was brutally murdered. His death would become one of the most significant moments in American history, leading to the largest and longest protest movement ever. Throughout the country and around the globe, millions took to the streets for months demanding change after squeamishly watching viral videos of unarmed black people being killed by cops. This time we'd had enough. This time was different. Or was it? In the three years since George Floyd's murder, there have been victories. The biggest, accountability. Former officer Derek Chauvin is serving a 21-year sentence for Floyd's murder. The other three officers involved are also behind bars. The changing national climate also led to Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday, the only American holiday celebrating freedom that includes black people whose ancestors built this country. There have also been major disappointments. In the wake of Floyd's death, corporations pledged millions to diversity initiatives, including to black media. But evidence shows very little has actually been spent, meaning many of those pledges were hollow and performative. But the biggest disappointment by far is the failure to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, a federal bill reforming policing, including by banning no-knock warrants and chokeholds and requiring body cameras. And now some states are trying to make it illegal to record police activity. Just one more reminder that for every step forward, there's a step back. But we gonna keep marching, keep shouting, keep holding everyone accountable. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.